So today's topic is creation, as my past self is observing. So I'm going to ask you three questions. How many questions am I going to ask you? Okay, I want someone to volunteer answers to the questions, but you're not going to know the second question until you've successfully answered the first question. And you have to use the answer to the first question in order to answer the second question. And so on to the third question. Does this make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the first question is, what is bread made of? Flour and water. Yeast. Okay. You don't have to use yeast. I make bread without yeast. Salt. Salt. One should use salt. It's not so good if you don't use salt. That's it. You can. That's what bread is made of. Flour, water, salt. And the salt is like, you could get away with it, but there's a reason why in the Code of Jewish Law it says you should dip the bread in salt, because bread that's not made with salt is kind of, eh, but whatever. Okay, good? Simple enough? Understood the question? Okay, I'm cheating now. Instead of asking the second question, I'm going to take the first question and rephrase it slightly and ask you to answer it again, okay? So do you remember what the first question was? Yeah. Remember the answer? Okay, we're just gonna go simple flour, water, we're gonna ignore the salt complication. Okay. What turned into the bread? Flour and water. Same question, just phrase it differently, right? The first question that I asked, and the second question really is just the same question, What's flour and water made of? Sorry, what's bread made of? Flour and water. What turned into the bread? Flour and water. It's two ways of phrasing the exact same inquiry. Yeah? Yes? Or you're not following? I feel like there's more of a component that turned into the bread. Well, what else turned into the bread? Okay, fine. But then I could say that the, in that sense, I go back and say that in some sense that the, if you want to include air, then I have to say in some sense that the bread is also made of the air. I mean, that, yes, the more expansive I think about it, I could make more things. But you understood the, okay. Good? Second question. What is God made of? <laughs> no, I'm serious. What is God made of? I want you to use the first answer. God is not made of anything. Because okay. remember, remember how I asked the first question, is what is the bread made of? We said flour and water. But then I can take that same inquiry and change it differently. What turned into the bread is the flour and the water. Now, so you've asked the question the second way, what turned into God? The answer is, anything turned into God? So then is God made of anything? No, okay. So what we've done is we've introduced a new category of thought, right? Everything we encounter is made of something. Yes? In the regular everyday life? In other words, everything was, used to be something else that was then turned into the thing that it is. Nothing turned into God, so God is not made of anything. Is that weird? Yes, it's weird, but weirdness is not an excuse not to be real. It's just that's the way it is. Okay, third question. Good? Third question. So remember, we're going to use the answer to the second question to answer the third question. 
what is creation, the created reality that God created? What is it made of? Remember, how do we answer the first question? What was the first question? This is a class we have to really pay attention. What is bread made of? Cloud and water. Another way of asking that question is what turned into the bread? Which would be flour and water. Then I could say, okay, well, what's God made of? And I say, well, this is another way of asking that would be what turned into God? And the answer is, well, nothing turned into God, so God is not made of anything, right? So then if I ask the question, what is the created reality made out of? Another way of asking what is, is what, did, what turned into the created reality? So what is created reality made of? But is it the same way that God's made of nothing or different? Ah, now we have a topic for a class. So we're going to go through this train of thought again so that it's clear. Okay. What is bread made of? Flour. Another way of asking that is what turned into the bread? The flour and the water. What's God made of? Well, then that would be the same as asking what turned into God. Did anything turn into God? No. So God is not made of anything. What is created reality made of? Well, then that question, the answer to that would be the same answer as to what turned into created reality. Nothing. Some created reality is not made of anything. So now we have this, this very interesting similarity, which we have to explore the difference between them, which is that God is not made of anything, and created reality isn't made of anything, but in two very different ways. Well, very, very simple. Before, if God doesn't create anything, what's real? If God doesn't create anything, what's real? Think about it for your answer. God is still real. Why? Because he doesn't depend on our creation to be real. Right. In other words, it's the same way, like, you know, if, if I don't throw this marker, right, the marker isn't thrown, everything else stays the same, right? God doesn't create reality in as much as you believe God created reality. Everything else stays the same, other than the fact reality isn't created. Okay, so, well, God is not part of that question. Okay. So... Then what's created reality? Everything other than? Simple? Okay. So now, what I want to talk about is what does it mean that the created reality is not made out of anything? Okay. If we finish that and really understand that and how that's different from how God is not made out of anything, then I have more follow-up pieces of interesting information. But we'll see if we get to that. Okay, so what I want to do, different from the classes we had last week, is introduce a little bit more formal language. I want to explain why I'm doing that. What's the purpose of introducing formal language? Is that just to sound smart? So I don't have to keep explaining everything. Okay. If you use formal language, then you can get to, hopefully if you remember what the terminology means, you can get to a clarity of thought because you don't have to keep re-explaining everything all the time. Um, for instance, um, what's inflammation, medically speaking? Something like that. Does anyone have any medical training? Now, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on television. Um, 
Presumably doctors, when they say inflammation, they know exactly what they mean by the term inflammation. Probably it's a very specific medical meaning, right? Okay. Um, we'll use another terminology. Hemorrhaging. Do you know what hemorrhaging is? What's hemorrhaging? Hey. Now, why do doctors have these words? They're just confuse lay people like us? No. It actually makes it very makes communication faster because if two people both know what hemorrhaging as opposed to inf uh, as opposed to inflammation is, right, they can communicate much faster than having to describe the specific thing they're talking about. Does that make sense? Okay. And as you get to a more precise understanding of something, you develop terminology that captures those categories and concepts clearly so people can communicate. The problem is that other people aren't along with for the ride, they feel like they're getting left out. Okay, so there's a downside to using formal language. But there's an upside, which is that if you can learn it, it helps you think clearer and faster. And because we're going to be dealing with things that are rather abstract, I want to use the formal language, okay? So we're going to first introduce one term, make sure we understand it, and then we're going to introduce another term. The first term is going to be called material. Okay? I'll give you Hebrew if anybody wants the Hebrew, but I'm going to be giving the class in English. The Hebrew for this is chomer. Material. What is the meaning of material? The meaning of material is exactly what we've been speaking about until now. Material is something that can become something. Flour can become bread. So flour relative to bread is called material. Okay? Can someone give me another example of material? Mm, that's not good enough. No, wood, because what? Right, wood is material to a table. Right? But I, right, in other words, but I could think of, for instance, um, using my knowledge of organic chemistry, wood is made mostly of carbon and um, hydrogen and some oxygen, some other stuff, right? So those raw elements are material for the wood, right? So in other words, I want us to think about material as a concept describing the relationship of something. What does it mean to be material? It means something which can become something. So we would say material of wood is all those things? So I could say those elements are material of the wood. The wood is material for a table, right? Maybe the table could be material for something else, right? I want you to think of that as, as a, you know, it's, right, flour, flour, I can speak of what's the material of the flour, I can speak of the flour being the material of the bread. So I can't speak of material just without having some context, material for what? Does that make sense? Okay. You want to add a question? Right, so I skipped because I, 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 the, the wood is really part of a tree. So really, if you want to think about it, it's like the, the, the organic elements are material for the tree, and then I take part of that tree, and that's the wood. Okay. Um, now, one thing I want you to notice is that if you are material for one thing, are you material for only that one thing? Now, there's, you have three options. One is... Not, not necessarily. One is yes, and one is necessarily not. So, so what I would like to propose to you is that every single material is necessarily material for more than one thing. 
So use the, and now I, I'm not, I don't want to prove this to you. I'm just going to do some examples to demonstrate the idea, but you'll have to think about it on your own. If we had lots of time, I would maybe go through the arguments for it, but we don't. So I'm just going to, some things I'm going to just skip over. But just think about wood. In as much as wood is material for a table, it's also material for a chair. In as much as metal is material for a knife, it's also material for a fork. In as much as flour is material for bread, it's also material for a gravy or a sauce. You know how to make the roux kind of thing. There's different things you can do with the material. And in other words, the material has the capacity to be something, but that capacity it allows it to actually be more than one thing. Does that make sense? Okay. Is anyone not comfortable with this term that I'm using now, material? Because I'm going to keep using it now the rest of class. Okay. All right. Now, this is just a test to see if we're comfortable with the idea. You don't have to get the answer correctly. What is the material of love? Well, now think about how you would go about asking the, answering that question. What are we asking when we're asking the material for love? What are we asking? What becomes love? So, anyone have an idea of what becomes love? And it also needs to be two. And that thing that becomes love could also become something else. Else, other than love, right? Okay, so what is it that becomes love but could also be something else? What is that? What? Okay, value maybe is an answer. What? Respect. Okay, I just, now we're going to stop. I don't, because this is not the top of class. I just want you to see that this way of thinking doesn't have to be limited to physicality. Right? In fact, just use as an example, a, a common occurrence is that somebody loves somebody very intensely, and something happens, and that intense love turns into intense hatred. That kind of means that whatever the love is made of could also be... Probably has something to do with that. Okay. So I just want us to be comfortable with the idea that this idea of material should not be the same thing as what we mean as like physical or matter necessarily, even though those are the easiest examples to talk about. Okay? So if I were to ask you, what is the material of an angel? It's the thing that becomes an angel. Now, I don't know what an angel is. I've never met one. I don't know what this stuff becomes, but there is such a thing as the material of an angel, and it's not physical. Okay, good? Now we're going to do the... Next term, okay? The next term is called the form. The form. If you would like the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for this is tsura, but I'm not gonna use the Hebrew. What is the form? Not really, although it's related to, to the idea of shape. The form is what it is. And explain to you what I mean. I have some flour, and then something happened, it became bread, right? Now, something else could have happened, and it could have become, let's say, a sauce. Okay? So, I could ask, like, well, what exactly does it mean that it became bread? What is this bread that you speak of? What is that? What characteristics does it have? What is its essence? What is that all about? What is the content of what it means to be bread? That's the form of bread. Now I'm gonna use a simple example of form because bread is a little bit abstract. I'm gonna use a simpler example, which is a table. If I say a table, 
You all know what I mean, right? Okay. What color is the table I was just speaking about? I, was, I just said the word table and everyone knew what I meant, right? So what color was the table? What? Right, because I wasn't speaking about an actual table. I was speaking about what it is to be a table, the form of a table, right? So you didn't, like, we all have a sense of what it is to be a table. And okay, I was just talking about that there is something that it is to be a table. Now, an actual table is something has to be something has to become the table, and that thing will, in this case, it's colored green, and in that case, it's colored something like wood. So the form of something is what it is to be that thing, what character it has, what it's all about, what's identity. So, for instance, and this is debatable, but I'm just going to use this as an example. The Rambam Maimonides' view is what is the form of a person? The rationality. What makes a person be a person as opposed to being something else? What? Their capacity for reason. So if you encountered something which had 17 tentacles waving all around and like six eyes on the back of its head, right, and four mouths, but it was rational, what would the Rambam say? You would have to think of it as a kind of person. But would it look like us? No. On the other hand, if you see something that looks exactly like this, but is completely incapable of any rationality, then even though it looks like us, it's not a person. What? No, so, so here we're talking about something else. We're talking about what, give, what makes the thing be this thing, be what it is as opposed to being something else. So, so, so if you think about it, what you'd have to say is there should be some core unifying principle, but as you think about it, often it's hard to articulate that. So we often suffice with kind of certain descriptions of things. Okay. Um, so I'm going to mention two things, and would someone like to tell me the difference between them? What is the difference between a plate and a bowl? A plate and a bowl. One is just deeper than the other? That's the only difference? I would say it's the purpose, which then leads to this. So what do, when we think of bowls, what do we think of the bowls as being there for? Soup. Mix things in, right? What do we think of plates for? Just to put things on top of, right? Now, that means, relatively speaking, the bowl probably needs to be deeper than a plate. But I'm sure we could find some plates that are deeper than some bowls. Yes? Yes. Okay. So that's getting at what's the difference in the form of the thing. The form is not the shape. The form is not something physical. The form is something conceptual. What makes the thing be what it is? It's something that lawyers and philosophers like to argue about a lot. Okay? So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions, and I want, don't want you to answer them. I want you to realize that the answer to these questions is basically asking what is the form of the thing. Okay? Okay. What makes a dog a dog? What makes a Jew a Jew? What makes a house a house? What are we asking? What's its form? Are those easy questions to answer? No, but I think we all know that a house is not a dog and a dog is not a house. So we have at least some rough sense of the difference between the forms, right? Even if we don't have a precise, crystal clear sense of the difference. Good? Some things 
we don't even necessarily have a sense of the form at all. We use outside um, signs. For instance, in Jewish law, how do we determine whether someone is a Jew? Do we look to see if they have the form of Jewishness? And we just say, well, if we know that their mother is Jewish or they went through this formal conversion process, then they're Jewish. But, so we're kind of bypassing the question of having to see the form. Okay? Um, and, and we do that sometimes. Okay? If you, were to, if you were to go back to, like I said, the Rambam says that a person is someone who has the capacity for rationality. Do infants seem to have the capacity for rationality? No. So why are they people? Or how do we know they're people? We say, well, they look like people, so they're probably, they probably have the capacity for rationality that's undeveloped yet, right? We're using their physical look as a sign to indicate they're probably there. Okay. So the, the form of something is the what it is. Now, I want you to ask a question. I want you to, I'm going to ask this question. I want you to think about the answer. Of these two things, the material and the form, which one do we pay more attention to as we navigate life? what something is, what makes it be what it is, or what it's made of. What it is, see what the service is actually. I don't care if the table is made out of Right, we, we, we live in a world of form. I mean, it's a very experiential sense. I walk into the room, I see table, chairs, people, markers, right? That's how I mind processes reality. If I need to, I go down a step and I say, plastic, wood, metal, flesh. If I need to, I'll go down a step further, right? I was driving with my wife. Um, we were driving in our what? Car. And I relate to that entirely as a car until we realized that one of the tires was losing air. All of a sudden, the car is made up of things. One of them is a tire. The tire is something which holds air. And, and now we're like thinking about the material of which the car is made because it's not working properly. So we move to think about material one when we want to bring something into being, when we want to fix something, we want to get rid of something. But in general, we're just relating to life. We're really trying, we're really not trying, we, we relate to things as their forms. Right, so I'm talking to you, not as you know, sacks of flesh, but as people. Good? So we're comfortable in material and form? Okay. If two angels are different, what makes them different? So that would be the difference in their form or the difference in their material? Their form. Okay. If two people are different, what makes them different? I mean, the material is different. I mean, I'm made of this hunk of flesh and you're made of that hunk of flesh, so there's clearly a difference there. But the, the thing that's of significance is not the difference in material, but the difference in the... I'm avoiding purpose because purpose is like a very shallow way of form. It's e the easiest level of form to understand when you talk about like tables and chairs. If you go to deeper kinds of forms, it's a little bit harder to appreciate. Like if you ask like what's the purpose of a tree being a tree, it's get very metaphysical there. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just, I'm just avoiding getting into that cul-de-sac. Okay, so, and in fact, if you think about it, um, the material that we're made of gets recycled over time, right? Are you made of any of the same material that you were when you were born? No, but you still, but you still say the same person, and that has something to do with about the idea that the form is somehow continuous. Whatever something about what makes you you is saying the same. Okay, good. So we got matter, we got form. Not matter, material and form. Good. We relate to the form of things. We see both. 
what's this? What's the first thing in your mind? What's the first word that comes in your mind? Phone, right? Your first thing that didn't come into your mind was plastic. You relate to it. The word that relates to its form, not the word that related more to the material of that form. Good? Okay. Now. When we make things, what are we doing? We're taking something that did not exist and bringing it into existence. Yes? What? Just before that, like that's what we're doing. That's what we, to make something means it wasn't there before, now it is now, right? You're nodding your head. I'm just, you know, at a very basic level, right? If, before this phone was made, no one could, the phone wasn't there. You couldn't use it. It didn't exist. Now it exists. Yeah? That's okay. Now, if we think a little bit, we get to what you're saying is, well, when we're making something, what are we actually doing? We're taking some material and we're changing it so that it embodies a different form, right? So instead of being, you know, you tear down the house and then you use the stones to build a wall. So what happened? The stones, instead of having this form of being a house and a home, now they have this form of being a wall. Okay? And by the way, that same thing can happen in other senses. Think about the example I said, what happens when we go from loving someone to hating somebody, God forbid? Whatever the, whatever the feeling of love is made out of is being transformed into a different thing, so now it has this other form, this way, of, this other kind of experience to it. Okay? Now, there is an idea, this goes back all the way to the ancient Greeks, okay? and up to now to modern science, and it's an idea. What I mean it's an idea, I mean it's not something you can go and check. It's just an idea, which is, everything that exists now, the material that it's made of always had to exist. Always was. And the reason for that is a very simple thing. Every time something gets made, what happens? We took the material that used to be one form and we change it and bring it into another form. So if you keep doing that process over and over and over and over again, the only thing that's changing is the form, but the material remains the same. Now, I realize that the plastic didn't always exist or the wood didn't always exist. So you have to go down to kind of like a core level of material, the material of everything. But that material of everything always exists and all that's happening is it's changing forms. Does that make a kind of intuitive sense? Yeah. Okay. What is this called in modern science, this idea? Conservation. Conservation of matter and energy. Where matter and energy be understood to be two forms of some primordial stuff. That's the material of everything and it's conserved that if you start out with so much matter, you end up with the same amount of matter or the equivalent amount of energy because it's never create or destroy, just changes forms. Same idea, okay? If you apply this idea to consciousness, what do you get? That you have a kind of conscious awareness. If we say that that's ne- the consciousness is made of something, then what happens if somebody's consciousness disappears? That conscious energy has to become what? Like they died. It would have to be some other form of consciousness, right? So there's a recycling of consciousness. This is the, this is the Indian idea of reincarnation. 
So there's an idea. It shows up in many ways of thinking that what stuff is made of is eternal. It's everlasting. It doesn't change. What changes is the form. What changes is what it becomes. It becomes one thing, then it becomes something else. And maybe you can manipulate that process, right? When we make bread, we're manipulating that process. And sometimes that process happens against our will, like when a person gets sick and dies. And then they become, you know, food for the worms. Does that make sense? Okay. The first verse in the Torah says, Bereshis baril kim which roughly translated, because there's a dispute about how to translate the exact first word, is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now that Hebrew word, bara, he created, is a verb. It is only used in reference to God. In other words, it's an act that only God can do. Now, to be clear, words are used both in a literal sense and in a metaphoric sense. So if I were to say I'm starving, we would all understand that I mean that metaphorically, right? Nobody thinks I'm about to drop dead from lack of nutrition. Okay? Does the Torah always use the word bara in a literal sense? No, it does not. Sometimes it uses it in a metaphoric sense. But before we go into what the literal versus metaphoric meaning, you should know is that the word bara can never be ascribed to... No one can ever do this thing, which we're going to loosely translate as creating, other than God. So what is the literal meaning of this word, word bara, which we translate as he created? So to create something out of nothing. That is often how it's translated. But... I, I, I get nervous that people sometimes get ca- caught up in the wording. So I'm going to change the wording so that the idea becomes a little bit clearer. He makes things that aren't made out of anything. Because what does it mean you make something out of something? It means that something is made out of that thing. It means the bread is made out of the flour. The table is made out of the wood. The fork is made out of the metal, right? So to make something out of nothing doesn't mean you take this mystical nothingness and you turn it into something. No. What it means is you have something which is not made from anything. He made something without it being made of anything. And so what is that saying about reality? Is there some eternal, permanent aspect of reality that always is and then God comes along and manipulates it? No. What it means is there is nothing to reality other than what God makes of it. Which means that there's a very... The first verse of the Torah is basically taking a sledgehammer to the human mind. The most intuitive way the human mind experiences reality is that material has form. And then that material changes into another form. That's how it works, right? The ground... and the, the, way we, the way our mind makes sense of reality is the material has a form and then it turns into another form, another form. And that's what it is. So the, 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 the nutrients in the ground and the elements in the air and the energy of the sun, right, they change form and become plants. The plants are then eaten by animals, they change form and they become animals, right? People eat the animals, those, that changes form and becomes person, right? Person gets sick and dies and becomes what? Nutrients in the soil and elements in the air, right? And the cycle of life repeats. Emphasis on the word cycle. What does the first verse of the Torah say? That that's, that's not really like, that's what it looks like, but that's not really what's happening. 
What's really happening is God is making things be real. Nothing is becoming real. Nothing is turning, nothing is becoming something else, really. So there's this big tension, big, 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 big tension between this idea of creation and the more intuitive human way of thinking about it, which is why the ancient Greek philosophers, they, were, they said creation makes no sense. Clearly that, that's ridiculous. The, 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 the mystics in India, they had the same idea about consciousness. Because what that means is if you really think about it, if all this marker is, is that God is making it be real, then what is the marker really? How's the marker God? God is the one making the marker. What is the marker really? It, 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 it. So you have to do is you have to kind of think about it in two ways. Okay. In and of itself, the marker is nothing. And in as much as God makes it be real, the marker is a real marker. So you have what what this means is all of a sudden. You, you can't really think of anything just on its own. Anything is just, oh, this is that thing. Okay? If I have a fork, what does it mean I have a fork? The way we understand it. There's something called metal. Metal exists. Metal has this, it's material to a fork. What does it mean it has the capacity to be a fork? And this metal became a fork. And so now it's a fork. It could become something else later on, but right now it's a fork. Yeah? Is that that's the way we experience reality? But if God creates, then what is the fork really made out of? It's not made of anything. So then what's, what is really being the fork? There's nothing being the fork. So it means there's no fork. It means there is a fork, but the fork is simply... So this is the problem. Is we start running into this, this tension that like a new category of thought. Something which is real, but its reality is not its own. So I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a, a, a physical analogy for this idea, okay? Um, it's not a perfect analogy in many, many ways, but we're gonna go with this. Water is not hot, generally speaking, right? You encounter water every everyday life, it's kind of cool to the touch. Fire, on the other hand, is always hot, yes? If the fire is near the water, what happens to the water? It becomes hot, right? But the heat that you're feeling in the water is not really the water's own heat. What happens if you take the fire away from the water, the water away from the fire? What happens to the water? It cools down. So what does that mean? The heat that I'm feeling when I stick my hand in the boiling water, God forbid, and I burn, the heat I'm feeling is the heat that's in the fire, or sorry, in the water, but is it the water's own heat? No. Whose heat is it? Okay. Right? The water is just kind of a, a means by which I'm experiencing the heat of the fire. So what is this? If, if God creates, this is what this word Bria creates, that he creates, nothing, nothing, nothing is being turned into anything. What became this marker? Truly, truly, nothing became the marker. So does that mean the marker isn't real? It is real. But what is its reality? Its reality is God's doing. Its reality has nothing to do with 
it. Which now, in other words, what, what about this marker? What about this marker? Is something that we can say, uh, this is true about the marker. The marker itself. There's nothing you can say that's true. If, if the marker is not made from it, if the marker was made from plastic, then I can say, well, plastic has these certain characteristics, like it can hold shape. And that's why the marker has this shape. It holds its own shape because of the power of the plastic. If I, if, I were to, if I were to speak about a table and I say, okay, well, tell me about the table. I say, the table's this tall. Well, that's because the wood has the ability to have that kind of height and maintain that shape. In other words, when, when, we, when we speak about something, we're speaking about the power of the material to have that form. But if something isn't made of material, then its form has nothing to do with it. Whatever it is, is nothing to do with itself. And I want to emphasize over and over and over again, is this an intuitive concept to human beings? No. A bunch of sophisticated chimpanzees sitting around examining the world do not come up with this idea. So how do we have this idea? Where does this idea come from? I see your hand right now. What? That doesn't make any sense. But that doesn't make any sense. You've just all been indoctrinated. Think about it. Does that... Where does this idea come from? It doesn't make any sense. We'll get to miracles in a second. Does anyone know where this idea comes from? If God doesn't tell, tell you that he creates the world, is there any real basis to say that the world was created the way I'm describing it? If you examine the world and think about it, does, what does it seem like? Everything is made of? Of, an, of a material, right? So therefore, and that material seems to be always there, and so what does it seem like? Maybe you believe in a God who is like a great painter, he, he manipulates the material to make it into this beautiful world, but there's nothing in human experience that would make a person in any way think that God created the world out of nothing. Now, the problem is for, you know, the Torah has been revealed for over 3,000 years, and it's been repeated enough, and you repeat it enough times, people hear it, it sounds familiar, and they start to think it makes sense, but it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. Because what it means is that, that something's existence has zero, it, it, it has zero to do with itself, it's nothing to do with itself. As the reality of the thing isn't the thing's own reality, it's the reality of God being conveyed to you in kind of a weird way. God is real, and this marker is real only because God makes it be so. So whatever, is whatever I encounter about this marker being real, it's useful, it's, I can touch it, I can hold it, are just ways of coming to be aware of some deeper sense of reality. But that deeper sense of reality is really just God. It's not anything else. Now, I, I want to add a few correlations and the last questions. I'll ask those questions. Number one. Can this marker turn into a dove? Why not? It's not, whatever the marker is made of is not the kind of thing that can be made into a dove, right? Or at least not easily, right? I could break it down to like its elements and then like you know, turn it into food and then feed a dove and then make a baby dove and something like that, right? But 
as it is, the plastic doesn't have, you know, plastic is not what a dove is made out of, and therefore the plastic can't just become a dove, right? Could God make this into a dove? How? How? Is that because he has magic tricks? God can do magic tricks. Because whatever is making it a marker is his desire for it to be a marker. Well, if he desires the marker to turn into a bird, then guess what? There's nothing to the marker other than his desire for it to be a marker. So that means, for God, it's not a miracle to turn it into a bird. It's not like he has special magic tricks. When God split the sea, when God turned the water into blood, uh, you know, when God made the, stat, the stick into a snake, whatever else, he wasn't doing anything special as far as he's concerned. So the thing is like this, this is, it, it can't be the second thing because if you really think about it, what you'll start to realize is that, that there's, there's, there's an idea in philosophy called the parasite. You know, like in biology, a parasite is something that lives off of something else. So some ideas sound really good, but they're parasitic. They're living off other ideas without you realizing it. The second way you put it, God creates the material and then the material just exists and that requires no further influence from God. If you really think about what that means, you say, okay, but, but how can the material exist? It didn't inherently exist, so what made it exist? God's, we'll use this word power, right? Did his power, if it, did his power and, and the fact that it continues to exist is also because of his power. And like the notion of thinking through time doesn't, doesn't really change that. It exists because of his power. So it's always dependent on his power. If theoretically God did not have the power to make material like that, it wouldn't be. And so whether you think about it, the first way you said it or the second way you said it, it, on some deeper sense, it really doesn't make a difference. In our intuitive way of looking at the world, we, we just assume that there's something that's always, that, that always there can just be real on its own, independent of God. And then maybe there's a role for God to shape it. But beyond that, it, it feels like there's this, it's just there. But the, but the minute you take it seriously that, that, that God made something without it being made out of anything, whatever the thing he made is, it's being real is because he made it. So it's as real as long as he made it to be real, whatever that means. And so it, it is, it's inherently dependent upon God's power. If you want to think about it as a process going through time or not going through time, it depends on if you think God goes through time or not. So it, it, it clouds the issue. But like the minute you take seriously that, that, that God didn't turn anything in didn't take some material and turn it into this world. Okay. Um, and the Rambam writes about the guy for the reflex that it's just, this is the kind of thing that if a person thinks what, through what they're saying, they realize it's, that's the only way it would make any sense. So given that, is turning you know, water into blood such a feat? No, no, it's when we study science or in the old days natural philosophy or modern day, we talk about psychology, we're trying to understand, given the material, what something is made of, what are the rules, what are the patterns by which one thing can become something else? But if that's not really what's happening in some deep sense, then there's really no rules. That's true. 
So, so now I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you if the following sentence is grammatically correct. Okay. Is that sentence grammatically correct? Why not? Now is it grammatically correct? No. Why not? Now, if I do a word-for-word translation into Hebrew, Kohen Gadol Hu Nasa, it makes perfect sense. Okay, these are what are called rules of convention, meaning languages have patterns. And once you're used to the pattern, when something doesn't fit in the pattern, it's hard for you to make sense of, right? But could the language have a totally different pattern that would just work just as well? Okay, this is what's called descriptive grammar. Words, you're describing the way it works and then you're telling people what they should do, but like, it's just based on describing it. So you're right, when a miracle occurs, we can't really make sense of what goes on. But we're just describing the way things are in a way that makes sense to us. We're not actually saying there are actually any genuine rules. Does God violate a rule when he turns the water into blood? He violates, he violates a convention. That's true. That's not the same thing. Right? God has been pretty consistent that water stays water, and if water changes into something else, it has pretty predictable ways of that way that can work, right? And all of a sudden, one day, it turns into blood. Right? I've been speaking coherent English sentences using English grammar, and I can you know, decide to say something following Hebrew syntax in English if I want. Because I'm not really being bound by any rules. I'm just doing things in a way that creates a convention. So what does that mean about the very notion of reality now? I walk outside. Yeah? Is the outside going to be the way it is that I remember it? I'm going to walk out after this class. Is it, yeah, why? Who do I have to be trusting that that's actually going to work that way if this is the way reality works? If reality is created, if reality has been created in this way, what, what makes it be that the world has to be at the end of the class the way it was in the beginning of the class when I walk outside? That has to be that way? It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. So then why should I expect it to be that way? No, so, so, so this, is, this is where the idea of creation becomes, becomes... Remember I said the idea of creation is not something we actually build from our experience. God reveals it. So once I take the idea of creation, this idea of, of, of Bara, he created seriously in the literal sense. He made something, not he made something out of something. Well then, it's going to be whatever he makes of it. Which makes me how dependent on God? Completely. What's my fallback plan if God decides to not do the things the way he's been doing them until now. So that makes me, if I want to have any stability in my life, I have only one place to turn, which is, is there anything in the world that can provide me with stability? Truly. 
Okay? So this idea that God created the world and the idea of worshiping only God, they go hand in hand. I have a job. I get paid. And because I get paid, I can buy the things that I need, right? And how does that make me feel? Guess. How do you think that makes me feel? You're a human being, right? We kind of have similar psychology. I have a job. I get paid. I can buy the things that I need. How do I feel about that? Secure. I probably feel pretty secure, right? Okay. Now, if God forbid I were to discover that my note was in deep in debt and they were having difficulty fundraising, probably how would I feel? Mm. So what does that mean I implicitly believe about reality? No. What? What, what, what that means is that I what that means is that I find that that my ability to get the things that I need depends on things working in a certain way, and those things working in a way depend on other things working in a certain way, and when those things aren't working properly, then I start to feel like my situation could be under threat. Have you ever read a novel? Yeah. Okay. If the person, the protagonist of the novel is in like dire straits and everything is like, seems to be on the brink of collapse and it's all gonna be a disaster, does that necessarily mean there's gonna be a disaster? No. Why not? What? Why not? There's two people talking at the same time, one person. Why not? The author can decide. In fact, maybe the author is even deciding to change the story. In fact, maybe the author wants that radical turnaround as part of the story. Maybe that, because, right, because, because there's no reality to that story other than the author's making, right? If there's no, real, if there's no reality to this reality, it's not made of anything other than what God makes of it, right? Until I'm starving to death, there's no reason for me to be starving to death unless God wills it for me to be starving to death. That's it. Right? The lack of... Money, the lack of food, has no actual real bearing on what I should expect for the future. Okay? So this idea of being in relationship only with God, worshiping only God, finding security, salvation, hope only in God, is hand in hand, one and the same as believing God creates the world something from nothing. And conversely, Finding senses of security and salvation and trust in anything else, which we have a word for that. What do we call that when we, we start relating to other things as sources of our, right, what is our idolatry? Is denying, not the existence of God, not God's influential power, but denying the fact that reality is entirely of God's making. And which, again, which one is intuitive for us? That reality is entirely of God's making or that God maybe has a power to change reality? Which one do we intuitively relate to more? The second one. In other words, what am I trying to show you? We are all naturally, as human beings, idolaters. We all naturally worship idols. Now, we don't necessarily build all the myths and temples around it because we're supposedly wiser, but we all do that. For instance, here's an here's a interesting... Are you greedy? Not exclusively, but are you greedy? Sometimes, yeah? Do you want to be as greedy as you are? No. 
So there's like something that makes you greedy, even though you don't really want to be greedy, right? Okay. Do you think I'm greedy? Be honest. I have no idea. You do. You're just being honest. I mean, people are usually have some greediness to them, right? And if I'm a halfway decent person, do I want to be as greedy as I am? Okay, so this is interesting. There's something that is controlling you to some degree. And that same thing is controlling me to some degree. In fact, is it only controlling me and you or about everyone else to some degree, yeah? Mm. So there's like this power of greed that in the world, right? Power of greed or something that's causing them? Okay, whatever the power, whatever's causing the greed, right? Okay, now... Um, is there something uh, are there other things that, that influence your life or control your life or inhibit your ability to act other, other things you have to contend with other than just whatever's driving you to be greedy that even though you don't want to be as greedy as you are any other things what would be another thing what give me an example give me something concrete other than greed Positivity. Giving. Giving. I'm going to use a different one because this one's fun. If we're both greedy and we're smart about it, would it be better for us to cooperate or to fight? Cooperate, right? And yet, have you ever noticed that people tend to like, have conflicts that end up both people suffering? So it seems, and there's also that, and people don't want to have these conflicts, but some things get into it and they wish they wouldn't. So it seems to be this thing that drives us to conflict. Notice the thing that's driving us to conflict, the thing that's driving us to be greedy, seems to be tension with each other. It's like we're being controlled by two different forces. So how many gods do we have now? And we start like giving them like, making myths around them and like caricatures of them and like, but. Now what if we say though that, you know what? The fact that you are experiencing what you're experiencing is just because God makes your reality be that way and that's it. Well then how many gods do we have? There isn't a thing making you feel greed, another thing making you feel a tendency towards conflict. There's just God making you be what you are. Now you have to contend with the complexity of your reality. It's a very different way of thinking, right? It's not there's one thing pushing me this way and another thing pushing me that way. If, if we believe that God creates reality, the reality is not made out of anything, then reality is whatever God decrees it to be. And if God decrees reality to be complex, it's complex. If God decrees reality to be simple, it's simple. But there is no many things that we have to contend with. Now, is it therefore easy to really live with a belief that God creates the world? No. Are we commanded to do so? Is that part of the Torah? Okay. What's the purpose of miracles in Judaism? Or a purpose of miracles in Judaism? No. Can't have God without miracles. Yeah. The other it's not God, but that there's nothing to reality other one that God makes of it. And so therefore, just because there's a convention of how things have worked up until now, is that any reason for us to believe that it's going to continue to be that way? 
No. Now, what if God tells you it's going to continue to be that way? Now, and we're going to assume for argument's sake that God is not a liar. If God tells you that something is going to be a certain way, then is there a reason to, to rely on that, to believe on that? Okay. What if it doesn't look like that? So now you have this very interesting thing, right? You could have a situation where something looks like very reliable and dependable, but there's no reason to rely on it or depend on it because it's only as real as God makes it, and there's no necessary reason why God would continue to make it be that way. Conversely, God could tell you something's going to be a certain way, and there's no seemingly reason why it should be work out that way, and yet you should trust that it will work out that way. So you have this weird kind of thing of believing in creation that on the one hand you're in this world, interacting with the world, and on the other hand you're kind of not really playing by the, by the, by the terms that everyone else is. So, for instance, um, one of the things that Hashem says is that the Jewish people will continue to last forever. Now, if you look at many points in history, what does it look like is going to happen to the Jewish people? They're going to disappear. Now, we've been going through this for you know, a good few thousand years, so it's already not it's a, a cliche. Okay? But way back in the day, it wasn't very cliche at all. Like, you know, people really thought the Jews were going to disappear. What's the basis for a Jew being convinced that the Jewish people won't disappear? That Hashem says. No, but see, that, this is the thing. When, and this is a danger. If I were to say, I'm convinced that the Jewish people are going to last forever because we've already lasted 3,000 years, what have I subtly become? An idolater. Right? Because remember, let's go back to the first exile, right? The Jewish people were taken out of Egypt. They come to the Holy Land. They build a temple. They build a kingdom. And everything goes downhill really, really badly. And they're decimated by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians. They're taken into exile. Okay, how many little tribal peoples completely disappeared from the face of the earth because of that, that kind of a process? Tons, right? So is there any reason as a Jew is being dragged away into the, some wilderness of the Assyria or, or into the capital of Babylon that he should be – yes, the Jewish people will be eternal. Is there any reason for him to believe that? Well, if he trusts God, yes. If he looks at the reality, no. But now the thing is if I come you know, two and a half thousand years later and I say, ooh, I can trust that because of two thousand, two and a half thousand years of history – I might be believing the thing I'm supposed to believe, but I'm believing it for idolatrous reasons. You see what I'm saying? In other words, this one idea that God creates reality, it changes everything. Right? If, if, the, if reality is nothing, – nothing becomes reality. Reality isn't made out of anything. Reality, not saying reality isn't real, but it's reality is what God makes of it and only what God makes of it. And so if I want to connect to what's real, I want to live with what's real, I want to have, be able to trust what's real, then I'm forced into an exclusive relationship with God. And that is very difficult work. It's difficult work on the individual level. It's difficult work on the communal level. And historically, how have the Jewish people done with this? What? It's hit or miss, right? You read the Tanakh, look at our history. Sometimes we're really into this whole exclusive God thing, and sometimes we have a struggle with it. So what I want what I want you to so that question is the world made out of anything is reality made out of anything it sounds like a very abstract philosophical question right 
But if you actually think through what it means and what are its implications, its implications are that if I get fired from my job, should it ruin my mood? Because I'm just as likely to have food tomorrow with my job or without my job. Because whether I have food tomorrow is entirely up to God making it be real that I have food tomorrow. That's the only thing it depends on. It doesn't depend on anything else. Yeah. I do? If it's really just what God makes of it, then what do I need to rely on? Well, that depends what you that depends what you think of God now, doesn't it? This is why relationship with God becomes very important, because if you think of God as just capricious, then you're going to have a lot of anxiety. So, Let's go a little bit deeper. If what makes reality real is just what God makes of it, then what does that mean about everything that happens to me? This is kind of a different way of thinking. It's also false for us. What does it mean about everything that happens to me? It's necessarily good, necessarily bad, or necessarily good by the way. What? Well, what does it mean that something happens to you that's good? I don't want to go into the question of good and evil. Which we can have in the but just what, what, that, feels, that, doesn't feel that doesn't feel disturbing. But, but you and I both know we don't actually think that that's good, right? Because we take a child and we do things that the child really does not like and we all consider to be good, right? As human beings, I think when we engage in a tiny bit of self-reflection, we don't equate goodness with the pleasurableness of experience in the moment. I think we have an intuitive sense of that, right? Okay, so then what do we mean by something is good? What, what, do we, what do we mean when we think that something is good? Not just be religious. Like, oh, this is good. What does that mean it's good? Because it doesn't just mean I enjoyed it. Right? You're being parasitic again. Positive is just hiding the word good again. Positive is a way of saying good. It's good because it leads to something good. What does it mean that something is good? If you were to ask somebody on the street, say, what does it mean that something is good? What? That you gain from it. You want to say gain from it? We can use the gain from it. We'll go with that. I don't know if I agree with that. Let's go with the gain from it. Okay. Well, considering without God, you're not real at all. So, whatever God makes of you, you are gaining from it, but you're becoming real in some sense, right? So, therefore, everything God does is good. In other words, this notion, I was going to use a different idea which is that we think of good when we think of something is supposed to be a certain way. It ought to be a certain way. Like, I ought to have money, and I don't, so it's not good. Or I ought to have money, I do have money, so it's good, right? But where is that ought coming from? Where is that supposed to coming from? If the only thing that's real about reality is what God makes of it, the only thing that determines what's supposed to be is God, which kind of thing we have is tautology. And this is why the idea that God creates the world out of nothing is, um, to put it way one Jewish thing to put it, is the central philosophical concept of Judaism. But ev- almost everything in Judaism that differentiates Judaism from other ways of thinking really, really comes down to this idea. 
Not everything. There's also the idea of the covenant. But, and what it does is it means there's this radical monotheism. There's this radical sense of trusting God. There's a radical acceptance of whatever happens to you. Now, to be fair, I shouldn't leave you hanging. What does God tell us about relying on miracles? We shouldn't do it. So therefore, why shouldn't I rely on a miracle? Because miracles aren't reliable. No. No. Because it's sinful. Because that's something people, God does not want people to do. I have no idea why God doesn't want to do it. That's why I shouldn't do it. So, but now, in other words, to say God tells us not to murder. And for argument's sake right now, we're going to say God tells us not to murder. There's something wrong about murdering, right? If God tells us not to rely on miracles, then there's something wrong about relying on miracles. It doesn't mean miracles are not reliable. It means we're not supposed to rely on them, which then leads us to a very important point. What does it mean not to rely on a miracle? Right. So make it very concrete. If I need $50,000 to live the lifestyle that I'm living, right? Then I should do things that having $50,000 wouldn't seem miraculous. But now what if I need $50,000 to live and I'm unable to do those things? Should I now feel less confident I'll receive my $50,000? No, why not? Because at that point, it's not a matter of me choosing to live a life in a particular way, right? At that point, right? So... If you would like to be healthy, what would you have to do in order for you being healthy not to seem like a miracle? Would you have to like eat regularly, sleep regularly, get, take medicine if you're sick? Yeah, you would have to do those things, right? Okay, what if you're not able to do those things? You're really not. So let's say a person is in a prison camp, they can't have a healthy lifestyle, they have no access to medicine, and now they're sick. It's not about due diligence. That's, 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 you're turning it into a game. I'm trying to think about reality. If, if the reality of whether I'm healthy or not is ultimately just what God makes of it, so then me being healthy is just up to how God makes reality. One second, one second, one second, one second. Now, there's a separate thing which God does command us to do certain things, right? I think we would all understand very simply, right? If God says not to murder, and I murdered somebody, God forbid, right, then I could probably expect things not to be so good after that, right? God might be upset with me. That makes a kind of intuitive sense? Okay. I mean, how God would do it, that would make kind of intuitive sense, right? You, you do the wrong thing, you're going to get punished? Okay. If God says don't live life relying on miracles, so that's a choice I have to make, not to live life relying on miracles. So I have to do things in such a way that it doesn't look like a miracle. What about the situation where it's not up to me? person's in prison. They can't, they don't have access to medicine. They don't have access to healthy food. Is that, are they doing anything wrong by trusting that they'll be healthy at that point? No. Why? Because it's not about the choice they're making at that point. It's not about, you did, it's not about a game with God. Now, there's a separate question why God commands us to do that, and that's a separate thing. But if, if God is creating reality, so reality is only what God makes of it, then the only thing that influences how my reality look will be God. And for whatever reason, God takes this notion of, of of mitzvah and a sin and reward and punishment seriously. So if I don't do what God says, I should expect things not to be so pleasant. But that's not nothing to do with there's a natural order of things. So it's not that Judaism is saying, okay, you can sit around and do nothing and expect all the good stuff to happen. That's not what it's saying. 
What it's saying is that reality is entirely generated by God. And reality is only what God makes of it. And you should, what's your place in reality, whatever God dictates to you. And if God dictate, dictates to you not to do things relying on a miraculous change of events, then don't live life in a way that you're expecting miraculous changes of, changes of events. On the other hand, if it's no longer your choice of how to live life, what difference does it make? And so this, this, this idea plays out into everything. I want to give you just a physical analogy and I'm going to leave you with, 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 with that. When a couple gets married and has their first child, something changes. What changes? Does anything stay the same after that? No. no. Is it really possible to appreciate what that really means before it happens? No. In a way that marriage is not really like it. Imagine they, like you get married and like theoretically you divorce. Like it's, just, it's a relationship between two people. You bring a new person into the world and all of a sudden, everything is very different. Now, does that mean you really, it really sinks into the people right after they have a child, how everything is really different? It means they really get it. They're sitting there with a the newborn infant. They really fully get it. No. But just imagine all of the course of life about a couple who has a child. Regardless if they stay married, get divorced, they like each other, they don't like each other, whatever. It doesn't matter. Whatever happens. And the course of a couple who never have a child. Do those lives look remotely similar? Externally, internally, right? Okay. So the introduction of that one thing, having a child changes everything. Does that make any kind of sense? This idea that, that, that there is no material from which God made the world. He made it. God wasn't made. God just is. The world is made. But it is what he makes of it and only what he makes of it. The things are, the form of reality is what God makes it to be. There is no underlying material that it's made of, really, truly. If you really take that idea and unpack it this way, that way, all it changes everything about how we experience our life, about what we should expect of ourselves, what we think of the role of God is. Everything. And at what point does a person really, truly fathom all the implications of that? Probably never. Right? And that's something like to really go over and over and wrap your minds around over and over and over again. If you read the Tanakh, there's this basic idea like we should be totally focused on, on devotion to God and living life as God wills and then that's it. The, the conceptual underpinning of that is this idea God created the world. Not God made the world out of something. Not God came and manipulates things. Reality is only what God makes of it. This is very abstract, it's also very personal, it's also very relevant, and it's some kind of thing that a person really, just like we had the class about God, but now we're flipping it, instead of God, we're talking about our reality. What does it, what is real, what, is, what does that mean? What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to really live, right? How, what is the role of the conventions of nature? What does God really want? I give a very simple answer, but the answer you try to apply to your life becomes complex. So think about these things. Tomorrow, we're going to move on to something else that God did.
creation of evil. 